This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. It's one of the most baffling unsolved murders in this country. I'll talk to Kevin Donovan, chief investigative reporter at the Toronto Star, about his new book, Billionaire Murders, The Mysterious Deaths of Barry and Honey Sherman. And a political postmortem from a woman who blazed a trail in the Liberal Party's back rooms. Pat Sorbera has a lot to say about the rise and fall of former Premier Kathleen Wynne. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. It would take Canada 164 years to close the economic gap between men and women if things keep going as they are. A new report on how close or far Canada is from meeting United Nations gender equality goals shows, quote, uneven progress over the past five years. Experts say it isn't only the imbalance when it comes to pay. Inequality extends to all other elements of work life, too. It's why women have to save more than men for retirement. The global study was done by job search giant Glassdoor. Just over a week until Remembrance Day and a Canadian organization has just opened a new community of 15 tiny houses for homeless veterans in Calgary. The Homes for Heroes Foundation is planning to open up more across the country, named for soldiers killed in the line of duty. Many vets return from service with physical or psychological scars, which can make finding jobs and housing difficult. Asthma sufferers are being told they're contributing to climate change as much as meat eaters and that patients can help reduce their carbon footprint by switching to greener medicines. New research from Cambridge University says inhalers may be contributing to environmental pollution by releasing a gas that propels the medicine out of the inhaler. In 2017 alone, British doctors prescribed around 50 million inhalers to asthma patients in the U.K., and inhalers were responsible for about 4% of greenhouse gas emissions there. It's a case of no pain, big gain, and it's landed a U.S. doctor in jail. Todd Schliffstein has been sentenced to two years in prison for accepting bribes to prescribe large amounts of a highly addictive painkiller. The doctor was once honored for his efforts in relieving chronic pain in his patients. He's one of five New York doctors charged with accepting bribes to prescribe millions of dollars worth of fentanyl spray. That's the unmistakable and familiar refrain of Britain's Speaker of the House, John Burkow, who has held the post since 2009. He retired this week. 
His witty instructions to unruly parliamentarians are legendary. Prime Minister Boris Johnson joked that this was the, quote, longest retirement since Sinatra. Nine candidates have declared their intention to succeed the 56-year-old Burkow since he first announced his retirement plans last month amid all the Brexit debate in the British House of Commons. I'm Libby Zneimer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. It was first described as a murder-suicide when their bodies were found in a macabre death scene at their Bridal Path home. It's almost two years after what turned out to be the double murder of Apotex founder Barry Sherman and his philanthropist wife Honey. We still don't know who killed the billionaire victims and why, but the Toronto Star's chief investigative reporter Kevin Donovan uncovered some tantalizing new details in his book, The Billionaire Murders. He stopped by our studios. You point out in the book that the police never actually officially said it was a murder-suicide, but all of us, myself included, had sources telling us that this was a murder-suicide, and it really did not sound right. Not only the police sources, but the detective at the scene saying that night to the public, we are not looking for outstanding suspects, and there's no sign of forced entry. The police, much, much later, have said that there were a lot of break-ins in the, the around the Sherman house. In fact, the Sherman house was broken into a year before. A lot of break-ins, and so we're trying to quell fears that this is not a... Uh, they, the police say they were concerned that it was seen to be a, a burglary gone wrong. It's, it's un, I mean, the police have not really spoken and given a true accounting of their, their uh, actions in this, but by the next day, uh, all the, you know, the front pages and radio and television were saying that police were looking at murder-suicide, and, and it really wasn't until six weeks later, well, it wasn't until six later that they announced that it was a targeted double murder. Do you agree that the police basically botched this at first? Yeah, they made some mistakes, and and it, it started with uh, the, the the police at the scene, uh, then the first pathologist not able to make a determination, and then entered the Sherman family. Uh, certain members of it were quite upset. They hired private detective, they hired uh, a lawyer, and then they hired a forensic pathologist who used to be Ontario's chief forensic pathologist, Dr. David Chason. He, the next week, did his own autopsies and uh, invited the police to come. They didn't come. He made a determination immediately that it was, at the end of that day, that it was a double murder, and then nothing happens. Uh, That would have been December uh, 22nd, 23rd, and then I get involved on January 6th. I was assigned by the Star to answer the question, is it double murder or murder-suicide? I developed some sources and the forensic... Uh, with some forensic sources and and uh, and others, and was able to determine enough that I could write a story uh, six weeks after the death, saying that the private team had come up with this determination of double murder. At which point, all of a sudden, David Chason, the pathologist, his phone rings. He gets a call from the police. Can you come and talk to us? He does. Delivers his report. The first pathologist, who's more junior, concurs. And then the police have a press conference, uh, uh, which was attended by a lot of media, and they announced targeted double murder. And so that first six weeks, there were some, I think, probably some serious uh, gaps in the investigation because they were focusing on a theory that did not end up to be the theory. A lot of people say that the whole murder-suicide thing was crazy because of the way the bodies were found. They were both hanging from belts and, and with their hands behind their backs. 
And and the the hanging is a, is a key thing, and it's obviously a disturbing conversation to have. Yeah. But when I first read the media reports that said hanging, I imagined somebody hanging from a high spot with their feet dangling. That's not how they're found. Uh, Barry and Honey are found in a seated position, so their 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 bum leg on the floor, leg stretched out in front. The belts, they're not hanging from the belts. The belts are supporting them because there's a, a meter-high railing. Uh, like, so just probably only about uh, a foot or less above their head holding them in place. And and Barry Sherman, according to Brian Greenspan, his eyeglasses are perched perfectly on his nose and one leg uh, is, is, is over on top of the other leg uh, stretched out in front of him and, and almost looking in, in what somebody described to me as repose. And that is not the sort of thing you would expect to see in a murder-suicide. There would be, well, you can lead yeah. to everybody's imagination. And so I've not seen the crime scene photos. Uh, the, the description we have comes from Brian Greenspan, and who I, th- I suspect has seen them. And uh, obviously, yeah, a mistake was made. There was a cousin, an aggrieved cousin, because way back when Barry first took over the company, there was another side of the family involved, and these cousins have taken him to court many times and lost, but they feel aggrieved, and there was a lot of focus on this cousin. What happened to that? The cousin, Carrie Winter, and and, uh, uh, and three other male cousins, they were uh, all under the age of 10 in the 1960s when Barry Sherman began his meteoric rise uh, in the generic world. And, and, and Barry did uh, purchase uh, the, the cousin's, uh, his cousin's uh, father's business, which was a generic firm, and then went on to, uh, uh, to, to sell it quite quickly. And then started Apotex a year later, and then it was Apotex where he made his his, his fortune. Fast forward to the 1990s, and, and the cousins, who are now grown men, are starting to wonder, wait a second, what happened to Dad's business? And they start doing some sleuthing, and they, they find documents which they say indicate that they should have a one-fifth share of Barry Sherman's $5 billion. And, I mean, it's a very complicated court case. Uh, they They had several motions before uh, various judges, and ultimately they lost, and they lost just before the murders. I might say just, I mean, three months. But I heard this guy going on television and saying, I used to have very detailed fantasies about killing Barry, but it it never would have been killing him in the way he was actually killed. Yeah, I mean, this is where you say you can't make this stuff up. So, yeah, Kerry Winter, who I've interviewed quite a few times, He's uh, so he's a man that works in the construction business, and he uh, had, had, by his own admission, was helped by Barry over the years. Barry tried to help him get clean because Kerry uh, had uh, some significant, by his admission, problems with uh, with drug addiction, and Kerry did get clean. Uh, then you know, Kerry is finding out that, in his opinion, Barry should have given them a lot of money, and so Barry says to Kerry, "I've been good to you. I've been good to your family." And that's the point when Kerry gets upset. And so Kerry says two things, actually. One, he says that he, he got so mad at, at, at his cousin Barry that he wanted to kill him, as you described. He also says that at one point Barry approached him and said, can you uh, kill Honey? Uh, or can you get a hitman to kill Honey? Now, there is absolutely no proof to that, but that's what Kerry says, and he maintains that to this day. You think that the police now have a working theory? 
I had the opportunity to cross-examine the detective on the case, uh, and in April he told me that we have, as you just referenced, Libby, uh, a theory of the case, a working theory of the case, and an idea of what happened. He won't say if they have a suspect, but I don't know how you can have a working theory without a suspect. Just a few weeks ago, uh, so in, in uh, September, the same detective told me on the witness stand, same theory, uh, things are going well, we're cautiously optimistic uh, that there will be a resolution to this, and we're now just going over an, a voluminous amount of data that we have seized from an entity, which I'm assuming is a telecom or a telecommunications firm, something to do with maybe locational GPS, could be banking information, not sure, going over all that. And we're, the feeling I got was that they're getting closer. Okay, well, it's fascinating, Reed. Thank you. That was Kevin Donovan, author of The Billionaire Murders, The Mysterious Deaths of Barry and Honey Sherman. I'm Libby Zneimer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. She was one of the first women to rise to the top in Ontario's political backrooms, and she was the architect of the unlikely victory of another woman, Kathleen Wynne. But Pat Sorbaro was caught up in bribery charges that ended her career, even though she was acquitted. She looks back on the lessons of a life in politics. Just found myself thinking back over 40 years in politics. Just thought, okay, what do I need to come from this? And what I needed to come from it was what I could pass on to the next generation, and particularly young women coming into politics. You say that your biggest accomplishment was being instrumental in the election that elected Kathleen Wynne, the first woman premier who won her general election. What's important to know is, right, there's a big structure. And I, I, over all those years, finally got to the top of that structure as myself, a woman who had fought from the early days to find my place at the table. And Kathleen Wynne really gave me a big part of that. She herself had come through many struggles, many hurdles. It was all, all those things that came together, and it was a pretty critical outcome, I would think, to for everyone to push through all those hurdles and actually get her elected. Before she came in, most people thought time was up for the yep. Liberals. So yep. what do you think about the way you handled the campaign and her turned that around? The electorate was clear. They wanted change. And what we had to do was make it that Kathleen Wynne was going to be the change that they wanted. We could talk about this person, Kathleen Wynne, who was very different than what people were used to, and that she would really approach government and the kind of leader she was going to be. And and, and that, that resonated. Then there is uh, the trial over the issue in Sudbury. Heady days. We were in government. We were, I mean, in a majority, we were had a lot of things we wanted to get done. And then suddenly one phone call started to change a lot of things. And for me, as a person who had never, ever been in the limelight, I mean, I was a political staffer who stayed in the back room and never expected to be sitting here in front of a radio, to finally find myself catapulted into the limelight through the release of the tape. And not in a good way. You and were not charged all, with and not at bribery. All in a good way. So through that very long process, a year and a half, I was eventually charged, and then it was a, a year to trial. The charges, I would argue, were political in nature, and when it got before a judge, he threw them out of court at the very first chance he got. And what was the impact on your life? For me, I was always focused on getting through it and getting back to the campaign. The day of the verdict that threw the charges out, there was a press release issued saying we welcome Pat Cerbera back to the campaign. But ultimately, it became very clear to me that there was a team that had taken over the campaign in my year absence, and they really didn't want me back in, in any way. Do you feel betrayed? I feel betrayed uh, by some of the people who were in that group. By Kathleen, no. She was left in a very, very difficult position. 
I, as I say in, the, in Adam Howell, I, I say I felt there was a completely second trial going on and I didn't know anything about it and wasn't given a chance to defend myself. You believe that one of the reasons that Kathleen Wynne suffered such a huge defeat is because you weren't there. I would hope that I could have made a difference in getting to party status. I mean, the, for the first time since Confederation, the Liberal Party didn't get party status. That's pretty big. Why was the electorate so vitriolic in their rejection of her and the party? You know, I think at the end of the day, and, and there were focus groups held that we brought in people that knew Kathleen. We just talked to so many people and asked, what is it that is making you you know, feel this level of, and, and they would use the word hate, they would use the word intense dislike. And so many people could not articulate what it was. Like they they definitely felt it, but they couldn't articulate it. So it was very hard to uh, figure out how to change their minds, right? When you don't, when they can't even really tell you where it's coming from. But I think they felt that she would be a different kind of premier. Uh, and we fell into the same old, what I called government head. We ran the same way, and then a couple of decisions really threw them off, and this was not who they expected Kathleen Wynne to be. And and then once they felt that betrayal, then there was no going back. They they were finished with the Liberal Party and with Kathleen Wynne. Pat Sorbara, thanks so much for this. Thank you. That was Pat Sorbara, author of Let Em Howl, Lessons from a Life in Backroom Politics. <laughs> And that brings us to the end of another edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thank you for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. Zoomer Week in Review is produced by Zeev Hadi, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Nimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.